Hey, Kyle, this is Tamir Klein listening in from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I'm a local artist and lake surfer. Currently, I'm working on some projects involving surf craft and woodblock printing. Always excited to hear each episode you throw on, and I uh, can't wait for more to come. Catch you on the flip side. I'm standing on a pier at the outer banks of North Carolina, 50 feet above the Atlantic. To the left and right, forward, back, and below, all I can see is ocean. I'm wearing a light blue hat that looks like a bejeweled swim cap, and a heavy black cable snakes down my back like a ponytail. Even though I look like an extra from the Esther Williams movie who wandered into Woody Allen's sleeper by mistake, in truth, I'm a human lab rat, here to measure my brain's response to the ocean. That was a line out of the book Blue Mind by Wallace J. Nichols, which is a book on my book club. So head over to kyle.surf slash book club and buy it. I'm also an Amazon affiliate. So if you use that link to buy the book or any of the other books that I have up there, or if you just click the link above to buy any of your shit on Amazon, I will get a small percentage of that purchase at no cost to you. I wanted to thank... Mickey for donating to the podcast on Patreon this week. Thank you, Mickey. High five. This is an ad-free podcast, and it's people like you who keep it that way. It's people like you who allow me to drive around and get these great interviews and keep these podcasts coming at you every single week. This conversation is with Dr. Wallace J. Nichols called Keeper of the Sea by GQ Magazine, A Visionary by Outside Magazine, and A Water Warrior by Aquatics International. He is an innovative, silo-busting, entrepreneurial scientist, movement maker, renowned marine biologist, voracious earth and idea explorer, wild water advocate, best-selling author, sought-after lecturer, and fun-loving dad. He also likes sea turtles a lot. Um, Jay lives up in Davenport, which is where I had the chance to, um, sit down with him in a little cabin surrounded by redwoods. So many smart people live around Santa Cruz. I think that there is, um, a false idea that all the interesting people are down in LA. There are plenty of them down there, but a lot of times I've found that the most accessible really high quality guests um live outside of LA but this uh this was no exception um Jay is one of my favorite people he is one of the smartest people I know and he has dedicated his life to worthy causes and has is one of the people who I think really has moved the needle on a lot of these issues so it is always an honor and a privilege to be able to sit down with him. And without further ado, I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Wallace J. Nichols. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. Standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. So you'd be proud of me. I was able to turn all the color off of my phone here, which makes 
social media a lot less addicting. Yeah, totally. It's crazy yeah. to see. My phone is black and white now, yeah. and it's just a setting that you can turn on at any time. And I go on Instagram now, and I'm like, meh. <laughs> yeah, <right>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go look at the trees outside. They're yeah, way more colorful. It was starting to get boring already, but then you just, you know, sped up that, that process of, of just making it. It's a great you know. example of how uh, irrational we are. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's just because I see a friggin' pretty candy cane color picture on my phone (laughs) that I get addicted to it and get this little dopamine hit. And the little badges, you know, the little red badges that you have waiting messages are, you know, just kind of... A little closer to the... Oh, yeah. Those little red badges are definitely addictive. Yeah. Have you ever heard of a guy named Tristan Harris? Yeah. Mm -hmm. The silicon, like Mm -hmm. they call him like this, the moral compass of Silicon Valley. Yeah. We're trying to be. Trying to be. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Time well spent is Mm -hmm. his website. I'm a big fan of that. He was on Sam Harris's podcast and, and was breaking down Instagram. And he said, if he, if people knew that behind every click that they made, there were a thousand engineers (laughs) doing their very best (laughs) to keep you on site as long as possible. The next thing. And that when you, when you scroll down and there's the little wheel waiting for the next, uh, notification upload to happen that is purposely put there to give you just enough time for your cortisol levels to raise up and then for the dopamine hit to dump. Yeah, and they right. used that um, as a, from a model in the casinos using say, the roulette. I've uh, done some work, I did some, some work with IGT, which makes the software in half the world's casinos. And uh, you better bet they have neuroscientists on staff advising them on how to do exactly that thing. It's, what kind of work were you doing with them? Uh, le- sort of leadership consulting on, uh, they were going through really not related to so much to, um, that question. They were going through kind of a, a, a leadership bottleneck and, uh, needed to think through some things. And, and so I was brought in as part of a part of the team to advise them and just ended up, so it was neuro leadership. And then I ended up talking to them a lot about how they have employed neuroscience uh, sort of behind the scenes and, you know, to create these algorithms that keep you maximally addicted and losing your money, but not, not so quickly that you just feel the pain and leave just that just right kind of sweet spot. Right. That maximizes profits for the casinos and keeps you entertained. In, in, yeah. In the hot seat right there. That reminds me of what Annie Leonard always talks about with planned obsolescence right. and how companies will, will sell you a product that they know will last just long enough so that you'll buy a new one when it breaks. Yep. But yep. it won't break so soon <laughs> that you hate the product and you have the conversation with it. Yep. I think that that's shifting though. You see companies, you know, shameless shout out to my sponsor, Patagonia and others like Yeti that have, kind of switched that whole model and they say, well, look, the product's going to be more expensive, but it's going to last forever. And if you don't like it, you can bring it back. Yeah. You can bring it back anytime, get it fixed for life. Um, change your, I mean, it's just sort of as extreme in the other direction as you could go from planned obsolescence. And I, you know, I think, I think it's, I don't think it's a big swing. I think it's a little swing. I think there there's room for a handful of companies to do that. And there's people like us who will say, right on, I'm 
I'm with you for life. And, and then there's kind of everybody else who is kind of the disposability factor is, is increasing with with everything, with them. It's, you know, the disposable clothing now, which, you know, when, when I was a kid, if you, if you said, Oh, disposable clothing, you wore it out, you patched it and then you passed it down. That's how clothes work. Uh, and now it's like literally disposable one time it's made to fall apart really just you get one good wear out of it and it's it's gone so um my dad's a flea market guy yeah. he goes to the flea every weekend and has for the last 30 years <laughs> and he will never buy something new yep yeah i mean if it, i had a friend who needed a couch once and before uh he was going to buy it. I said, ask my dad. He, he knows, <laughs> he knows he probably has one. And, uh, he asked my dad and my dad said, Oh, what color do you, do you like? What's your favorite color? He said, uh, purple. That would go well. Like, <laughs> I have a purple couch for you. <laughs> I know where it is. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, he, he does, uh, have clutter in his life, <laughs> but it comes from a sentiment, which I respect, yeah. which is this, that this disposable economy won't last forever. Mm-hmm. And I think that people change their behavior largely off of um, deciding what kind of people they want to be. Yeah. I, you know, I think, I think about it as a dad and um, I, when my kids were younger, we would go to Goodwill wherever we were traveling in the world, we would find, you know, their version of Goodwill and we'd go and just hit it. And they loved it. And I'd say, here's 10 bucks, here's 10, 10 bucks, go crazy. And then we'd have, it was kind of a competition and we, they were so into it. In fact, my oldest daughter was, had this idea of creating a, like a, a meta app for, for, you know, thrifting, thrift store, Goodwill, like an app that would just help you find wherever you were in the world, all the best rankable, you know, sort of stores that you could go and find you shit. That could be kind of cool. And so that was, and then they, something happened. They became teenagers. So now they're 13 and 16 and they're like, dad, um, don't tell anybody that you, your clothes are all from goodwill. And, uh, it's just not, it's something happened where it's, it's still in them. They still like it, but they're, you know, the marketing is working on them because they're, they're, they're going through the teenage brain thing and they really don't, don't want they they want to go and they 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 want to find cool stuff, but they don't want to tell me to tell anybody. So here I am, like talking to you, right. and we're recording it. But uh, and then I know they're going to come out of the tunnel on the other end, and they're just going to be so good at it. They're going to be like your dad. They're going to be like like we are, and and because um, it's it's baked in, you know, as part of part of their their upbringing and their lives. But um, but I think that's part of it. Is 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 making it fun, right? So we, we were just talking about dopamine and badges on social media and, and how neuroscientists are working with technologists to make this stuff just incredibly addictive. Um, right. So how do you do that for Goodwill? Like, let's get some neuroscientists working with Goodwill to make thrift, thrift storing uh, with your kids just way more fun and uh, gamify it in a way what would you do let's say that you were on a team that got 
$20 million to get people to shop at Goodwill? How would you go about creating that kind of behavior change? Get some pop stars kind of involved, maybe write a song. Macklemore did that. Yep, exactly. It, it, it Pop and tags. It helped. It helped, right? Oh, hell yeah. Well, I mean, if, right you, if you look at a lot of the environmental organizations mm-hmm. on, you know, trying to, to preach that message mm-hmm. um, and the behavior change that they create, which I think is great right on, versus a Macklemore YouTube video that yeah. has put over 100 million views now. Yeah. One song, boom, did, did all all of the work of yeah. all of the other other campaigns that we're trying to accomplish the same thing. So I think that's that's part of it. Um, making it authentic and legit and not just a surfacey kind of um, cl- you know clearly you know uh, a pro athlete is is drinking some sugar water and you're going they don't really drink that and you you kind of okay they're they're drinking it but when it's really, uh, I think a Steph Curry is sponsored by essentially tap water, uh, by you know a Brita. We're drinking right now Brita tap water. So we, we run our creek water through a Brita filter. Steph Curry is sponsored by Brita because one, one reason, that's what he drinks. And so he said, when I train and when I play and you see me drinking water, that's what I'm drinking, filtered tap water. So that's my sponsor. And... That that works on so many levels, and it, so I think if you can find a celebrity spokesperson who who shows up and is like, man, my favorite thing to do is to hit goodwill and uh, spend ten bucks and come come out of that place with some 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 cool threads. Well, then let's make a song and a video about that. And that that's how it works. Yeah. I have a friend who's a pro mountain biker, and he's sponsored by Rockstar Energy Drinks. And I was at his house one day, and he has this whole mini fridge full of rock stars and we were drinking uh jaeger and there's a drink called jaeger jaeger bomb and it's like rock star and jaeger and just bad news it's the beginning of a horrible night is what it is and he said oh yeah grab a rock star so i take a shot of jaeger and i crack the rock star and i I start chugging it this filtered water and he's like oh yeah no don't grab that those are the ones that they give us that we drink after the races these energy no drink companies will give their athletes <laughs> filtered water in the cans, in the cans. because they know the athletes don't want to drink <laughs> what they're selling. Drink. Oh, I can imagine like after a big bike oh, race, that sounds a, like the worst really, thing ever. It might, it actually might put you into cardiac arrest. Yeah, yeah, seriously, right there. Horrible advertising. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, it makes sense. So might as well just go straight to Brita filtered water and have them them be that so that's kind of i think that's where you know if we're going to try to fix these problems um that's kind of where it's going to go yeah it must be an interesting experience for you watching your daughters grow up go through various trends be fed marketing and see it from a neuroscience perspective totally and 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 then to hear yourself be your dad or you know say the things where you're just like okay i'm you know there <laughs> right. this is so ineffective compared to this team of you know the billion dollar ad campaign backed by neuroscience and then there's me saying hey wait you know that's not cool this is cool and they're like, yeah whatever basically it's just 
you don't you you just cannot compete with the um, neuromarketing backed by like massive cash there it's just um i guess you can i mean i don't want to sound all gloom and doom well, i think the only thing the only way you can is to understand it better transparency right and the yeah. story that we were just talking about around recognizing that there are a thousand engineers behind every decision that you make on Inst- Instagram helps you become more thoughtful about your decisions. Right. So I, I think this is sort of the, the pivot is I, you know, I used to think that eco literacy would, would save us, but I think it's neuro literacy that will save us that when you understand that, you know, that, that team of neuroscientists, you know, with, a uh, unlimited financial budget and a group of engineers when you when you understand that and you're neuroliterate and you see what they're doing it's fascinating and then you can kind of you know jujitsu it and just kind of you know use use their energy and just push it by you and go i saw what you did there that was wicked cool now i'm letting it kind of fly by and it's as simple as opting out Right. Really. Exactly. I mean, it it it, it is, it, it sounds kind of pedestrian to say, but it literally is as simple as saying no. And then, on top of that, saying that felt good. That was a better dopamine hit. That just got saying no than that damn little red blinking badge that you guys engineered to to grab my brain. That no was the best dopamine hit of the day. And then and 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 just sort of going with that. And then and talking about it like this, and so that's where, that's where the the ninja move comes, and and you say, okay, well, let's let's become neuroliterate, let's talk about it, let's use this technology to share this conversation, and and where else can this go? I mean, what if we become neuroliterate about um, about water in our lives, and hopping in a cold ocean, and what that does for our bodies and our minds, or or, um, or even just like swimming laps. What's how does what does that do for you? And and starting to combine these conversations, um, it gets really cool, really, really fast, as you know. And it's so much cooler than anything anybody can put in a little electronic box, really. Yeah, because yeah, it's deeply nourishing. Right. Right. Y- y- like. Advertisers try and sell happiness, right? But the famous Jim Carrey quote, I wish everyone could get rich and famous so that they could realize that that's not the answer. Like along every part of life, you have people like seeking to live this life that's being sold to them and then getting there and feeling disappointed, right? So the only people that I see really who are living lives that are sane today are ones that are immersing themselves deeply in nature on mm-hmm. a consistent basis. Yeah. They're the, um, the, the great late writer, Jim Harrison is one of my, my favorite writers. His last book was called the river swimmer. Just my, that's my book wreck, uh, of the day or okay. maybe of the year. I'll check it if out. If you haven't read it. Excellent. It's a novella, beautiful read um put it top on your list but he said of the 12 or 13 friends who were writers that he's known during his career that committed suicide tragically none of them 
had a deep relationship with nature. That was his observation. Now, that's not a scientific study. That's one poet viewing his life and the, the men and women, mostly men, who took their own lives, who were, um, for whatever reasons, but his observation was, to your point, um, they, none of them had the kind of relationship with nature that his writer friends that survive bad years um, in and out of depression or whatever it is, but know that their medicine is the river, literally, and that it works, um, or birding. For, for some people, it's birding. For some people, it's waves or all of the above. That's the best medicine available to us. And uh, you can call it a placebo effect, call it whatever you want, but it, but it works. It, it shifts our, our brains. We make the analog of the drug that we don't need to take with our own brains, and it helps us through all kinds of stuff. And uh, I wish we, I wish we could teach everybody that. I think that's that's I guess my personal goal is that every single human being knows what we're talking about right now. That's just common knowledge, as as common knowledge as you know which way is up, which way is down. You know that if, if everybody just knew if you're feeling bad or you're, you want to boost your creativity, you want to boost romance, go to the water. It will make you feel better. It'll boost your creativity and it will pull you closer to that person that you want to be closer to. I guarantee it. Yeah. And uh, we should be teaching that to kindergartners and first graders and second graders all the way through till they graduate high school. And then they, we should be teaching it in our in our science classes, in our history classes, and all of them. Yeah, I think that uh, these ideas that past civilizations knew and had a great reverence and respect for, we have forgotten. And the challenge of our time is to look back and and, and and use modern science to explain it in the way that you are, but to look back on these old ideas. Because... Chances are, if you're feeling neurotic or stressed out or have a particular issue in your life, chances are someone in the history of the world has also been in a similar mm-hmm. situation as you. Right. And chances are they figured out a way to move through that situation in a healthy way. Yeah. And if you look through the history of literature and prose and art, you will find over and over and over and over again this idea that nature is medicine, that water is medicine. If you, uh, so let's let's take an example that cuts right right through some some of the divisiveness, the twenty third Psalm in the Bible. You know that one. Yea, though I walk through the valley shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. It goes on and on. Sure. Right. So right in the middle of that Psalm, I'm going to paraphrase it. it. Says, when the shit hits the fan, the Lord says, "Get your ass to the water." So look it up. It's a, that's my version of it, but essentially, that's what it said. 3,000 years ago, they knew that if you're having a bad day, you're having a bad week, you're having a really crappy year, you have your red mind is consuming you, and you're angry, and you're, you're scared. What do you do? Get your butt down to the water, saith the Lord, right? So that's, that's the, there it is. 3,000 years ago, 
right? Every spiritual tradition has the same mandate. The water will heal you. Do you have any thoughts on the aquatic ape theory? Uh, I get asked that a lot. I, you know, of course we were, we were highly aquatic in and out of the water, being by the water made us healthier. There really isn't a, isn't a, a, a big argument. I mean, we are, we can handle it. We can do it. So of course we, we were, we have a, an aquatic component to our history. Uh, I don't know why it's so, um, sometimes scandalously, uh, discussed, but, um, well, a lot of people say that it's kind of a debunked theory that, but like that, that we have these evolutionary, evolutionary adaptations to water that other apes don't like an infant's ability to hold its breath underwater automatically. Our noses are pointed down so we can be streamlined through the water. Um, subcutaneous fat, that right. kind of thing, which is interesting, but yeah, I, I, I figured mean, I, I had to ask you. Yeah. Well, I, I just, I look at it and I just think, well, we, we are mostly water. We live on a, a water planet. Um, you're dead in a week if you don't have water. Of course we are, are finely adapted to handle, um, being in near under on water. Um, and by the way, this is, sort of the thing that I'm kind of into is we're also really good at orienting ourselves and then and moving towards the signal of water. So whether hmm. it's a, what do you mean? The, the sound of it, the sight of it, you know, you, you've probably played this game in the car, you're on your way to the coast and you play who sees the ocean first, right? It's one, it's a favorite game for families all over the world, literally. Who, who sees the ocean first, like between the hills, between the mountains, through the valley, who, you know, you, you say it, you say it, you say, I see the ocean and when and you win, when you see it first. And there's that anticipation, uh, as you get closer and closer. So what is that? Why is that just such an ex- exciting experience for, for generations of, of kids? Uh, it's because that, that feeling of water means it's going to be okay. There, there's food there. There's hydration. There's hygiene. There's a, there's a, a beauty to it. We call it beauty. Um, other mammals don't call it anything, but they also feel it, because if you don't feel that signal, you die. Basically, if you're not able to process the sensory input that says there's water over there, uh, you're going to be in big trouble. And so that is, that is what marketers are, are doing to us when they use um, watery images to sell pharmaceuticals or a Mountain Dew or a vacation. They're playing into our, uh, our deep blue minds and using that as a, as a marketing tool. Um, we need to understand that, and I think we need to also use it uh, in a, a neuroliterate way as a force for good. Uh, we need to teach uh, everybody that water water's your go your go to for whatever ails you, and uh, I think we would have a healthier group of human beings, and we would have a healthier planet, healthier lakes, rivers, oceans if if we all knew that. Yeah, I think we would prioritize it more because everyone listening to this right now, whether you're living on the ocean or you're not. 
you have had some kind of entheogenic experience with water at some point in your life. I remember being a little kid and the water rushed up on my toes and the dog was playing. And the trap that I think people fall into is the busy trap where sooner or later enough shit comes into your life that the priority of water, the priority of going to the beach Mm -hmm. uh, begins to recede away. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's, I think largely because people don't understand why they should prioritize it. I think that's important work that you're doing, right? Just in the way that if we became more literate about the way that we interact with social media, we would do it more responsibly. If we became more literate about what water does for us, mm -hmm. we would make sure that that shit stays in our life for our whole lives. Yeah, and the the movement to do this with food is is much more developed, much more robust. There's a a lot of people talking... A lot of podcasts, a lot of books about being food literate, you know, whether it's Michael Pollan and many others who are just relentlessly trying to teach us about food and what we put in our bodies. This, the version of that conversation for water is much less developed. We tend to talk about water, uh, the importance of water in terms of its, its scarcity, in terms of its ecological and its economic role in our lives but not its emotional role in our lives. And so that's, that's kind of the play here. And, um, and, I, and I'm kind of ecumenical about water. So if you're listening and, and you're nowhere near an ocean, maybe it's, it's your river, maybe it's your lake, maybe it's a pond, maybe it's a creek, like Mill Creek out the back door here. Maybe it's a pool, maybe it's a public pool, maybe it's a float tank, uh, maybe it's your bath or your shower. I don't care, who cares? It's, it's water, get in it and understand it as a a force for good in your life and as your your go-to medicine and whether it's athletic performance um, intellectual performance creativity uh, whether you're a scientist a musician an artist um, and i mentioned romance there's nothing better really than being in the water with your honey uh, being by the water um, anything to do with water is, is just sort of inherently romantic. Um, my wife probably hates when I say this, but, uh, I, I believe both of our children were conceived with kind of within, uh, sight and, and sound of, <laughs> of the water. Um, so, uh, you know, proof right there. Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, my nephew is conceived under McWay Falls in, uh, <laughs> in Big Sur. And his name's McWay, right? That's the kind of thing. You got to go to him. Yeah. Um, I think of it, too, uh, just to continue to create a more robust point um, for you in terms of rites of passage mm-hmm. as well. Like I'm 28, and I have noticed along the lines of, of aspects of our culture that have been lost, that rites of passage is one that has really been lost. And I think that a lot of negative behavior, specifically among young men, um, results mm-hmm. a lot of violent, self-destructive behavior. And if more young men had outlets where they could really challenge themselves through interacting deeply with the wilderness, Mm -hmm. whether that's getting out into waves that scare you or going on a bow hunting trip or hiking the PCT. 
I think that that can create um, a much needed rite of passage for for young men. And there's a lot of people who kind of don't know what they're missing, but they know that, that something's missing right now. Yeah, and I think at the core of that is is um, is the the experience of awe. And uh, I have some colleagues who study the science, the neuroscience and psychology of awe and wonder. And what I've learned from them is that this emotion that we refer to as awe, that is often part of that rite of passage, whether it's a, you know, on a river, a big wave, on a mountain, face to face with a wild animal, um, that what awe does, it requires you to rethink everything. That's what it does. It makes you feel small and requires you to rethink what you thought before. Um, it switches you out of a me, me, me mode into, it melts that down in, into a we mode where you're just, that idea of me versus everything is just gone. It just it goes away. And so, so, you know, we can talk about awe for a while, but let's first talk about awelessness. So a life without awe is what we're describing. You will never find awe, this kind of awe on Instagram, I promise. You will never experience this kind of awe with a VR headset on your face. Do you follow Kook Slams on Instagram? <laughs> <laughs> all right, with, with the rare exception, all right? So, uh, <laughs> Everyone go follow Kook Slams if you should not right now. I'm not, I'm not advocating for social media, but goddamn, it will make your day just a little bit better. Uh, entertainment is one thing. Um, a good laugh is another thing. A, you know, a beautiful image. Um, a memorable um, bunch of, you know, pixels uh, for sure. But when we're talking about awe, I mean, true, like just rock your world awe. Like a fucking storm <laughs> with lightning and thunder. Every cell in your body is yeah. just is on yeah. and re requires you to rethink who the hell you are. Yeah on this planet. That's what we're talking about. And if you go through life and you don't know what we're talking about, um, stop listening right now and, and go get some because that I think is, is the magic ingredient here. And that's kind of what we're talking about when we talk about right, rites of passage. If you go through life and your, your, your answer to the question is what it, what was the most awesome thing and your answer has something to do with Instagram or any kind of, you know, sort of technology, uh, digital screen experience. Um, even a great movie. I mean, there are great movies and I love great movies and music, but I'm talking about the music that's live, that, that just rocks your bones, right? That that's awe. And, uh, nature is the number one source of awe. And within that broad category that we call nature, water, is the biggest source of awe. And, and this is, this is the research that my colleagues have done. So, wow, water is the number one source of awe and awe builds empathy and compassion and sets us up to be better people and to be humbled and transformed. Wow. That's one yet one more role for this medicine called water, uh, in our lives. And so get, get it get some, whether it's a, you know, Lake Superior, uh, frozen or a nice big wave 
or 30 feet under holding your breath or a big animal right there, eye to eye, whatever, whatever you're, or big river, like some rapids or um, whatever it is, go, go get some and, and have it uh, rewire you. And, uh, you know, you, you'll agree. And you, you know, if, probably if you're listening to this conversation between the two of us, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're preaching to the choir. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're on board. You're, you're not one of the all, allness. Uh, yeah. Well, I think though that it's the way that you talk about these subjects is very attractive to people. And I think it's because you spend your time thinking about what works, what doesn't work. And I've heard you say in past talks that, you know, one of the most ineffective ways to talk about ocean protection is that it's 70% of the world. Every second breath you take is a result of the ocean. Uh, It's, you know, all of this stuff where you've just kind of lost people Mm -hmm. through the headiness Mm -hmm. of it. The factoids. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't take people to the place. Um, And I... I think that if we are going to get people who are, who who can adequately describe how fucking awesome nature is and how important conservation is for the very reason that people should have access to places that inspire awe, mm-hmm. because giving people access to nature ultimately is giving them access to the most accurate reflection of themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that everyone deserves that. So the more that we can get the conversation over into the way that you talk about it, and unfortunately, you're one of the rare ones, Mm. uh, I think that that's how we move legislation forward, and that's how we get people to prioritize it further. Yeah, so I'm I'm a marine biologist, and I'm a big fan of science and facts, and at the same time, I realize that you can numb people out if, if your strategy to convince people to care an awful lot to the point maybe where they devote their lives to fixing what's broken. If you're going to come at them with, with facts and hope that that's, what's going to work. Um, sorry to say it, it won't. Every marine biologist I know, every ocean conservationist, everybody fighting tooth and nail for decades to protect wild rivers and mountains and lakes and oceans and forests and species will tell you some version of that transformational story. Maybe it was one moment, maybe it was many moments, but they did not just read a bunch of facts and say, I'm going to spend my whole life fighting for this river. That was not the story uh, that, that led them to kind of, kind of go all in and be unstoppable. So what we want is more, unstoppable people who are head over heels in love with that feeling with with what nature does for us um in all you know throughout our lives from when we're kids and we're playing all the way through our our last breath and where do you want to be i want to be in the water i want i want to see it one more time if i can get in it that's where i want to be my last breath i want to be floating in the ocean and uh so that's Let's talk about it. So when you have those experiences, that's great. But then make it your story and and figure out how to talk about it and how to wear it. Because there are going to be times when you're not going to be out there experiencing awe. You're going to be in here 
doing some mundane thing, some job, not that talking to you is mundane at all, but you're going to be at a, at a desk and you're going to conjure up that wave and that's going to get you through that moment. You're going to have a, a tough spot and it's going to be your memories and your nostalgia and the richness of that and the story that you tell about who you are that's going to push you through and help you make the right decision, you know, the right purchase or, you know, the right choice. And so those experiences of awe and transformation need, need to become our stories and we need to tell a better story of who we are and what water is for. And I think together that's what, that's what builds movement and fixes what's broken and which is what we're after. Yeah, I agree. I think that the power of story and metaphor always beats facts. Yeah. I've learned that and I've um, recently sent you a podcast that I was a guest on and I think that I kind of fell prey to that. And like as as much as I know that story and metaphor always trump facts, I still I find myself sometimes falling back into this youth <laughs> activist Kyle where I feel like I need to like you know, put a quarter in the machine and let me spit out the facts of why yeah. it's important to protect the environment. And I can see people's eyes glaze over and that fucking sucks. <laughs> and I'm dedicated to figuring out how to tell better stories. Yeah, so and I, and I think that you are right in the way that in, in when you say that, uh, ocean conservation is further behind than other categories, be it food or uh, co- comedy. You know, I have started to spend a lot more time with mm-hmm. comedians because, goddamn, those guys are good storytellers. Yeah. So two two things there. So a good story can and will save your life. That's a fact. And what do I mean by that? I, what I mean by that is before we had had pencils and paper, let alone iPhones and websites before we had any other way to communicate, the only way we had was to either draw stuff on the wall in a cave, but you can't take the wall with you, so that stays. And when you go for a walk or a migration, you don't get to take the cave along. You don't get to take the boulder with everything you wrote down in those drawings. What do you get to take? A good story. And those stories saved our lives. It, it helped us find the food, the water, to you know, find our, our, our mates, to avoid our enemies, uh, to stay out of trouble, maybe to get into trouble sometimes. And a good story saved us. So our brains love a good story. And if you can take a good storytelling and combine it with mission-critical information, like the new story of water, wow, cool. All right, that's going to get sticky fast and it's going to propagate and get disseminated and be really useful and it'll save us. And I think that's that's kind of where we're, what we're getting at here. Then you add in humor. So what happens when we laugh together? The oxytocin flows. Oxytocin is a neurochemical that builds trust. Right. So my dad used to come home from business meetings and he always had these jokes written down on like a napkin. And I'd ask him, dad, why did you write jokes on the napkin? He said, whenever I got up to give a talk, I always started with a joke. That was how they used to do it. And now these days you start with a good story. Anytime you're going to give a talk, you open with a good story. And if it has a little bit of humor, that's even better. And so what we're basically doing with a joke or with a good story is we're priming the pump with oxytocin. 
So now the room is full of brains with oxytocin. So oxytocin builds trust and builds connection. And so the opposite of that would be to fill the room with cortisol, fight or flight response. Everybody's looking for the door. They're like, I don't want to listen to this, this person. It's freaking me out, making me really uncomfortable. <laughs> Get me out of here, right? Um, or I hit the pause button, I hit the stop button, and I'm going to stop listening to this conversation because it just made me feel bad, made me scared, right? So that's kind of the, that's the play here. You want, you, want to, you want to build connection, trust, so that people will listen to what comes next. Then you can kind of lay out a few facts because people, people have, you know, they're leaning in. They're laughing with you. Uh, there's rapport. There's oxytocin in the room or in, you know, in the airwaves. And that's kind of, that's, so there you go, neuroliteracy, right? There's, there's where the rubber hits the road here. We take the science that neuromarketers have known and used on us for a long time, and you apply it to fixing what's broken and saving us, and then you tell people what you did because it makes it even cooler. So a neuromarketer doesn't want you to even know they exist. Right? They want to stay behind that curtain. They don't want you to even have any sense that a neuroscientist is, is responsible for that ad during the Super Bowl. A neuroconservationist, on the other hand, wants you to know everything they know, full transparency, neuroliteracy. And so that's the, the, kind of the pivot there. And I, and I think it's also just fun and cool stuff to talk about when you get into it. Yeah. I agree. I know a guy named Neil Strauss. He wrote a book called The Game a number of years ago, and he's getting into surfing. And he's a wonderful guy. I know that he has a lot of shit that gets talked about him, but um, he's one of the most earnest people I know. And like, he's the kind of guy where we'll go surf uh, this little wave down in L.A. and he'll be like, okay, Kyle, tell me everything I need to know to get better. Because he's <laughs> the geek who loves to dissect uh, how to get better. And he's done that. He went from, you know, a, a guy who could never talk to a girl to one of the most infamous pickup artists in the world. And I was, uh, pitching a TV show and he told me, um, he said, do you know about closed loop or open loop stories? like, no, what are you talking about? He's like, so this is, he's like, so you can use this on anything, right? Like I, you know, he would use it in kind of a probably more nefarious way to pick up girls. But the idea is that you start a story. So, uh, like I walk into a room, whether it's pitching a TV show or a group of pretty girls. And I say, so I took this uh, breath holding course recently where they train you how to hold your, to hold your breath for five minutes. And on the first day, um, you do static apnea breathing, uh, which is uh, static apnea breath holds. So you, hold, you breathe up, you hold your breath for as long as you can. And um, then on the second day, you dive down as deep as you can. And then on the third day, you do a progress of um, how long you can hold your breath, right? And people can hold their breath five, six minutes after a couple of days. So I was laying down in the pool there and you have a partner who will tap you on the shoulder um, and you just relax. You hold your breath for as long as you can. And every 20 seconds when they tap you on the shoulder, you have to hold your, um, your finger up and then put it back down. And it's to a point where you can get yourself as close to passing out as possible. Um, 
Anyway, I want to tell you about this TV show that I have <laughs> going on, which is really exciting. And well, it, it was like, I just got you to the point in the story where you're like, wait, what the fuck, dude? Like, Did you survive? Yeah, right. So, so it's this, so there's this idea of, of like bringing the dopamine levels up and then just like holding it there. Right. And like, I, and then plugging in. You were right. like, all right, how long did you hold your breath, dude? Did you pass out or what? So. It's this this technique of using neuroscience and neural literacy to get your message across. Prime the pump with yeah. with the neurochemistry that you want in the pump, so to speak. Yeah. And and that is used to be a trial and error, you know, so the you know, psychology was done basically it was a black box, right? You try things and you see what happens, but you couldn't see what was going on inside the box. Now we can measure what's going on inside the box. So whether it's an fMRI brain scan measuring oxygen or an EEG measuring electricity or just spitting in a vial measuring cortisol, stress hormones, we can look inside the box and it's, it's what scientists do. And that knowledge is super fascinating. We are definitely in the golden age of neuroscience and brain science, but it should be used as a force for good. Um, not just sort of by pickup artists and politicians and marketers of sugar water, but by those of us who are working really hard to fix the things that are truly broken in us and in nature. Um, we had better use those tools as a, a transparent force for good to teach neuroliteracy, as we've been saying, um, or we're just going to continue to get our butts kicked. Yeah. Do you uh, look at politics through a different lens? Um, oh, totally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know. I mean, the, you know, so the Obama campaign, let's go back a few years. Um, they had neuroscience involved in their campaign. They had even their logos. They had, you know, they had people who understand human behavior in the brain consulting left and right on messaging and on design. Um, and, you know, I think that's. I don't know if we can say that the, the Trump campaign has, has uh, employed neuroscientists, but some of the techniques being used are certainly um, playing to our, our, our tendencies. Oh, 100%. You know, and, well, do you, do you know about the Cambridge Analytica yeah, right. controversy? Uh, exactly. So this was a Facebook survey that many Americans took that uh, was a personality test, right. and it, they would measure your... It's the ocean model, right? So it's openness, conscientiousness, agreeableness, uh, agree, agreeableness, extra, extroversion, and neuroses. Mm -hmm. And through those uh, five categories, they can uh, accurately predict what kind of voter you're going to become. Right? So then Cambridge Analytica and the Trump administration used this, um, this, this survey to... Market, market, yep. and get elected. Right, crazy to yeah. think about. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Do you? Um, I, I'm reading a book right now called "How to Win Bigly." Have you heard mm. about this? Yeah, I you know, read it. I've not read it. Um, it. It's God. What's the guy's name? Uh, space on it. But it's it's a really well written book about um, tr the science of persuasion. And he makes the argument that if you think that Trump is an idiot and if you think that Trump isn't persuasive, 
you have your story backwards right because a lot of the tactics that he uses um are highly effective an example of that is that trump will um make some grandiose statement like we're gonna build a wall we're gonna build a wall right and then the all of media in america will say you can't build a wall Look, look at this area right here where you can't build a wall. Look at this. Look at the expenses of it. It's not going to work. Okay, here are the facts. But for the next two weeks, Trump just got all of the media in America talking about his wall. <laughs> right. right. And the only thing that people will remember from that is that Trump's building a wall. And now we're into two years of talking about Trump's wall. So Ex that's it's, it is effective. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, it's, it definitely takes some uh, kind of moral flexibility mm -hmm. to spit out a massive you know, stat that you know is wrong, but then will get people to talk about the issue that you want raised to the top of their minds for the next couple of weeks. And so I think that's, that's the pivot right there is so you can use this approach and not you know, be spouting falsehoods you can still use this approach and apply it to the, the truth and apply it to ideas that will fix things rather than divide us or, or break things further. You, you can, of course you can. And it's, it's, it's done regularly, but you need to first understand the techniques and then if you're, you know, a science minded person, understand the science behind it and then ap apply those things. But the, you know, a lot of, a lot of the people who, who end up in positions to, um, solve some of the ecological problems, um, think, you know, marketing and communication is, is not science and aren't interested and generally don't even want to talk to journalists, um, let alone employ sort of marketing techniques uh, for world saving ideas. And so that's changing a lot. And there's a lot of great organizations that are helping scientists to be better communicators and working on the, the messaging piece. But we went along for a really, really long time, decades and decades, and we weren't doing that at all. And, uh, we got ourselves into some deep shit and now we're just starting to try to figure out how to get out of it. And so, um, I think you're right. I think you know, the more, more we can learn from whether it's Trump or Apple computers or Coca-Cola, but what, what they do to be global brands and quote unquote win bigly, uh, and then apply those lessons to do things that we, we better do fast. Um, I think that's good. Yeah. 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 You're in this interesting position in the environmental movement where you're like you're in it, but you're also kind of atomized outside of it with, again, what I think is a really important message. But I heard your talk um, a few weeks back at the uh, Dream In in Santa Cruz mm -hmm. what for, was the global waves. for the Global Waves Conference yeah. where they had a number of speakers speaking on behalf of the oceans. And you were the only one talking about how to communicate these messages that mm -hmm. I heard. Mm -hmm. And there were some great speakers there. And there were a lot of speakers who were playing the same tape. 
right. over and over again. Yeah. And, a lot of slideshows. Yeah, and <laughs> it, it becomes fucking frustrating for me, to be perfectly honest, to hear people talk about something as exciting as the ocean mm-hmm. and as fascinating as nature in boring ways. Yeah, we've, we've, we've done a really good job of making the least boring part of our planet pretty darn boring. <laughs> I mean, it's hard. It's really hard to make the ocean boring. And I have to say, as you know, I went to a lot of school and advanced degrees and grad school, a PhD, and I've sat in a lot of conferences that, you know, and, and sat through a lot of documentaries and read a lot of books that have done a pretty darn good job of, of making the least boring feature of our little blue planet pretty darn boring in that it's it's hard to do really hard to do but we're, we're, we, we gave it a good shot yeah i think that a lot of people don't feel permission to move outside of that narrative i mean i've met you when i was 18 years old you introduced me when i won the brower youth award right? exactly way back then and it's easy being immersed in that world mm-hmm. to spout the same narrative of we're fucked, it's the 11th hour, here are the stats to back it up. And one uh, um, thing that I've taken a lot of joy in is moving outside of the conservation world, mm-hmm. um, spending more time with comics down in LA mm-hmm. who give themselves permission to talk about anything yeah. in any way. And that's how innovation happens. And I think that if more people... Um, gave themselves permission to move outside of that narrative, um, not only would we see a lot more change, but we would see people in the conservation world get fired up again. Mm-hmm. We were just yeah. talking before about like your idea for a new book and, a, and an idea to write it in a completely new and unique way. Mm-hmm. I think breaking some, some of the old models. You're thinking about you know, your, your participation in, in, in winning that youth award. Um, it took some effort to even get to create a youth award. Like there's a a whole part of the movement. There's a, well, why would we, why do we work with youth? There isn't time. Why would we give youth an award? Like that was a a new concept. When you won that award, it's a relatively new concept to recognize young leadership and to elevate young leaders. And, uh, it took some people, uh, you know, we're dragged along kicking, kicking and screaming into that, that realm, let alone, uh, this conversation about neuroscience and psychology and humor and communication. It was, it was hard enough to recognize that young people, uh, should be included at these meetings and at the table and in the conversation and have some things to share. Um, we've come a long way. So there's a lot more, recognition that involving young people and and listening and getting out of their way is a really good strategy. Um, but not that long ago, it was, it was considered radical, uh, to invite young people to the table. So we're making progress, but it's sometimes, uh, frustrating for sure, uh, to see something so clearly. So this, this blue mind conversation that, you know, talking about teaching, studying, understanding the emotional benefits of healthy water, the cognitive and psychological and social and spiritual benefits of healthy water in our lives, 
Um, why do we dial that out? It's not, it's not in any of the ocean textbooks. It's not in any of the conservation textbooks. Starting to seep in, conservation psychology, starting to seep in. But why have we left all of that out, brain science, right, for so long? Um, so it's frustrating when you see it so clearly, how useful it can be, but then you, you know, bang your head against the walls when you try to get it, get it in, in, into the course uh, or into the textbook, um, into the conversation. So, um, I, you know, when I'm feeling like my head's banging against the wall more than three times, uh, I, I step, step around and I'll continue to bang my head against that wall. I'll look for the door uh, or I'll just go the other direction and, and do, do an endo, right? Try to go, go around the side. Um, Are you thinking of anything in particular? Any problem that you're up against that you had to oh, solve in Ikwe? I think just in general, I, I you know I, I wrote something the other day. It was just a reflection on um, seven. I counted seven times in my career that I was told that what I thought was a good idea was a career suicide, bad idea. Uh, and all seven times, looking back. Um, that wasn't true. Like the the thing that I saw that needed to happen was 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 a good idea, or at least an okay idea. Um, and I'll leave it leave open the possibility that it may, may have been terrible career ending <laughs> idea. It was always possible that you you think it's a good idea and it really isn't. Um, but in the the case of these seven examples, uh, it. The so-called experts, mentors, and you know, sort of senior uh, group of people were not correct, and uh, and so you learn. I think when, you know, at some point, you start to learn um, what it feels like when you're you're onto something, and what what a good idea really like. It drops in into your gut, and you're like, "Damn, I think that's a good idea," and everybody around you. Uh, your parents, your teachers, your mentors are saying, nope, don't do it. But you're just like, it's, it's just like, it just slotted in and it feels like it needs to happen. Um, and if you pursue it and it works out, then, then you have that memory of, of that feeling. And, uh, you know, that gets hardwired into you. And when you feel that again, you recognize it and you go, oh, that feels like that thing that I felt before. And it's whatever that is, it's, a, you know, it's, it's kind of an intuition or um, has to do with imagination and creativity as well. And being able to sort of see the way things play out, you know, and to, and to think it through. And it's probably, you know, it's a, it's a lot like, um, you know, sports and surfing and swimming. You know, Michael Phelps imagined his races like he actually visualized them every stroke, every every, you know, drip and drop of water. Uh, throughout the race, he would visualize and and swim his race in his mind over and over again. And so there's some some element of that to it, of being able to see if this happens, then that happens. And if that happens, then that thing happens. And that may be 10 years out. Um, and so that's something that's, you know, you you have to try and fail and then try again. And, and then you find that feeling and you kind of start to recognize it. And you learn, and uh, then you can kind of move towards it, move away from it. I, you know, I think it's it's kind of kind of coming back to, you know, the the, the love and the fear and the, the fight or flight response and and uh, and dopamine 
you know, and oxytocin playing playing a role there. Um, so yeah, just um, ref- was just reflecting on on you do that when you turn fifty. You kind of look look back <laughs> and go, what the, what 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 happened? You know, what did I do? Is any of it useful? Strengthening strengthening intuition is uh, one of the most interesting things I think we can do in life. I have a buddy who, his name's Jesse. He's an elk hunting guide in Colorado. And he was telling me a story about being a guide out there in the mountains and a distinct moment when he was walking down a path and he smelled the scent of an elk for the first time. Hmm. And all of a sudden it was this like, whoa, that's an elk. And I've never been able to tune into that scent before. Animals use their noses for everything. Yeah. If you're on a hunting trip, the whole game of it is staying downwind from an animal. Because if they s- smell you, they're going to be gone. And to be able to tune in to those little details, uh, whether it's to be able to smell an animal that's you know, a ways away, or to be able to tell, to, to be able to really tune into what the feeling of a good idea feels like, mm-hmm. that's that's a muscle that's worth strengthening. Yeah, for sure. And it and I think it and it requires long form, you know, requires long walks in the mountains and paying attention. Um, requires time to listen and read. Um, to ask questions and, and, uh, take it all in. And a lot of forces in our society are, are pushing against all of that long walks in nature where you, you actually smell, um, whatever is going on around you and really listen and, uh, and feel, um, and then the indoor versions of that, the more sort of intellectual versions of that, uh, a lot of, a, a lot of media and technology is pushing, against the long form, the long listen. So it's like, if you, if you've been listening to us and having this conversation, thank you. That's, this is a long, a longer listen. It's longer than a tweet. You know, it's longer than the little, a little quick, you know, post on whatever platform you happen to enjoy. Um, and that, that's, you know, we, we got here, we got in, into this topic of intuition because we, we noodled around and we talked to each other and we've, we've been having conversations for a decade and this is just the latest. And so we're, we're building on, this is a decade long conversation and this right now, that is the pinnacle of a 10 year conversation. That moment right there. You don't get to do that unless you do it. Like you gotta, you gotta dig in and, and, and talk to a guy for 10 years to get to this point where we're sitting at my kitchen table talking about intuition and elk <laughs> and water, you know? I mean, it's, it's, the, that's the long form, the, the slow, the slow, slow, long conversation. Um, and that's, that's how you learn. Yeah. And, uh, Taking the time. Yeah. yeah. One of my favorite people is Greg Long, who, you know, and I've had the chance to travel with quite a bit over the last year because luckily he serves for Patagonia now. Yes. <laughs> so we get to go on trips together. And that man will sit with a problem for 
a much longer period of time than most people will. And he will take the time to Google Earth around the world and find a new wave. And he will take the time to look out at a wave and decide, figure out just the angle that a swell needs to get into that spot for it to be perfect. And as a result, he lives one of the, of the richest lives of anyone Mm -hmm. I've ever met. Mm -hmm. And without taking that time to strengthen that muscle, he wouldn't be near the surfer that he is today. Exactly right. I think back on, on, uh, you know, someone once said that it takes 10 years, you know, fill in the blank, what what you say after that, but to really kind of have something kick in, um, I think back to our work with sea turtles and it really took 10 years before things started to seem hopeful. I think about that to devote 10 years to something before you get the glimmer that there's going to be a payoff, right? There's a possibility that it, you didn't get there and that, that 10 years led into a dead end and extinction, but it took 10 years for us to say, wow, we may save this species and and we have, and it's been 25 years. Is that the Ridley? This is the black sea turtle in uh, Pacific Mexico. And we were told it was too late. It was just not worth the time. They were bouncing along the bottom of the, the, the barrel and uh, funding, you know, was a bit desperate. And what was causing them to go extinct? They, the eggs and the turtles themselves have been overeaten. So gr- black turtle is a, is a morph of a green turtle. And those are the ones people love to eat the most. And so from, from the side of the nesting beaches, all the eggs were being eaten. And then the side of the, the foraging grounds where they hang out in the water, they were being hunted for their meat all over Baja. And uh, to the point of extinction, it was ecologically extinct, uh, economically extinct long ago, and then actually literally almost extinct. And uh, we were just naive enough and a little, you know, sort of rebellious enough to give it a good shot and uh, scrape together a little bit of funding and and start to get things going. And uh, it, it literally took 10 years to be able to say, wow, this might work. And then another 10 years to say this really is working. And now the black turtle has been downlisted. Uh, from critically endangered, it's now considered threatened, and um, that's that's the move you want. That's that's the the, the news you want to hear. That uh, your the species you're working on is being downlisted, um, and so the numbers are going up, and people have bought into the idea of protecting them, and it, uh, the turtle hunters are now the turtle protectors. That's the short version of it. Yeah, that's what you you got the them to be incentivized to protect the turtles because right. a lot of these guys that were poaching were really poor, right? They were yeah. just poaching the turtles to feed their families. So then right. you got funding to turn those guys into the shepherds of the turtles. Yeah. And economists would say, so how much did you have to pay them to quote unquote, do the right thing? And if my colleagues, my friends who were the turtle hunters were sitting here, they would look at you if you said that and, and say, fuck you really I mean in Spanish and so because are you paid to do the right thing whenever you do the right thing of course not 
So why would you not extend the favor, the possibility, you know, the, the honor, uh, the dignity to them that there's a possibility that they would do the right thing? Not because they're being paid to do the right thing, but because it's the right thing. And um, yeah, there's, there's financial incentives, but financial incentives aren't going to save the world. Really, just it, it's not, we don't have enough time and money to convince um, all poachers to make more money doing something else. It's, there's got it, that's part of it. But there's emotional incentives that are another part of it. And we're not good at talking about that. But um, there's a group group of guys I call some of my best friends who would say that uh, they did it because it was the right thing to do. felt good. And we locked in and committed to each other that when we're, you know, crusty old grandpas, we're going to be hanging out on the beach in Baja and there's going to be some turtles swimming around and there'll be our grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and we'll drink a beer and just look at each other and know that that we had something to do with that and that's the payday and it's not money mm. well it's jay nichols thank you so much for taking the time my friend my pleasure always is that's our show i'm going to play you out with a song called magosa by amadeu and miriam they're a blind couple from the country of mali and they are one of my favorite bands also if you want a message played at the beginning of this podcast like tamir from wisconsin you can record it on your phone using the voice memos app uh just tell me who you are where you're listening in from something you're excited about try and keep it under 30 seconds and email it to info at kyle.surf that's info at kyle.surf don't overthink it send it my way and i would love to play it also this is an ad-free podcast so if you get value out of these conversations please consider donating on patreon you can click the link below jay's bio and donate even just a few bucks a month it really does help you can also head over to my website kyle.surf and click the donate button that's where you can find my documentaries my book club all kinds of good shit over there and with that i hope that you'd enjoy the song by Amadeo and Miriam. Get outside, give someone a high five, and of course, go get in the water.